Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to Signal, a podcast powered by Consensus, where we will be sharing the most captivating stories and interviews from Ethereum insiders. In this episode, we're very excited to talk to Dan Finley, co-founder of MetaMask. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited about today's session because we're going to have a fantastic conversation with Dan Finley, who is the co-founder of MetaMask, the amazing crypto wallet that, of course, we all use. And we're going to learn the founding story of MetaMask, as well as all the different trends and vectors that make it possible. And so with that, I'd like to welcome Dan to the podcast. Hey, Lex, uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely, my pleasure. So maybe just to to give folks the scale of what we're going to talk about, we can start off a little with just defining MetaMask. What is MetaMask? How large is it? How small is it? What does it do? Just kind of let's lay the foundations for what has been built to date. That's a big question. I think I could probably fill all the time just answering it in great detail. And my own conception of it has changed a lot over time. And I think that we are changing what we are over time. But uh, how about I give you a sense of what we what we are today and then maybe a, a little taste of what I think we are turning into? Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ease us into it, but then you know, why not just <laughs> yeah, open, yeah, right. open the door? Just no, get... I'll I'll do this will be like table of contents level. Okay, so we are a cryptographic account manager for interacting with applications on the Ethereum blockchain and Ethereum compatible blockchains today. And we are increasingly becoming a more general purpose, a cryptographic interaction tool. So people aren't just using MetaMask to sign Ethereum transactions. Sometimes they're using it to log into websites. Sometimes they're using it to sign off-chain or layer two interactions. And increasingly, they're using it for even more protocols that we didn't even anticipate, like encryption and decryption, and even a little bit of zero knowledge stuff. So I think while we we started just trying to be a way to interact with Ethereum based applications, which are these, you know, transparently operating public applications on the blockchain, I think we're increasingly finding that people need a way to manage accounts when they're totally user custodial, when you own them via control of some cryptographic keys. And so what does it mean to interact with applications that are really peer-to-peer and controlled by cryptography? So we're making cryptography user coherent and you know as easy to understand for people as possible. So I sometimes think of us as like a little digital lawyer in a user's pocket that helps them understand where they're at, what they're considering doing, the implications of those uh, risks they're taking, et cetera, and kind of lay out their options. Yeah, and I think some of the the most recent public information out of MetaMask was 10 million monthly active users. Is that right? Yeah, that was the last really big announcement, but we, we smashed by it really fast. And um, I don't even know how often we're announcing and celebrating things, but we passed 15 million monthly active users also. And we're already approaching another significant milestone. And so we're like scrambling to come up with another good party idea. Because yeah, I mean, this whole ecosystem is growing a lot. You know, I, I, I'd i like to say we can take credit for it. But, you know, obviously, this is mostly the builders, you know, we've just been enabling. And that's really been our thesis the whole time is just make it possible to make applications on the blockchain. And people sure are. Absolutely. And I think it's probably fair to say, and we have many listeners from fintech, from the blockchain world, from the technology world who 
you know, see some aspect of um, what a crypto wallet is. They think of it as like an investing app for tokens or other people think of it as authentication into Web3 applications or others think of it as a, as a glue across multiple protocols, but they don't, you know, they don't really see the full picture. And so I'm excited to, to dive deeper into those underlying reasons for why it's, it's not as clear or as simple an analogy, but something actually much bigger. But one of the one of the notes that you hit on is the note of enabling and helping developers and helping people make things. Can we talk a little bit about your journey into technology and how you started out on this path towards helping people interact with technology? Yeah, sure. I'll I'll give a, I'll just make a couple bullet points of a speed run. I'll try to pick ones that I haven't done on other places. So, you know, when I was a kid, I just wanted to be an artist. I drew most of my childhood and then I wanted to be an animator and then I wanted to be a filmmaker. And at a certain point, I was finding how the doors to that industry are just kind of sealed shut. Like, well, at least when I was a kid, you know, we didn't have YouTube when I was young. I'm very old. So, you know, you basically had to beg for acceptance. So when I discovered software, like the idea that you can just you know, open a text editor and make something and then share it with the whole world with nobody's permission. That blew my mind and I got excited. I taught myself to program. And then my first app got rejected by Apple <laughs> for terms on the app store. And I was like, in, in what language did you teach yourself to, to code? Was it HyperCard? No. Oh, well, actually I did HyperCard in like 96, but uh, my first like, you know, programming language, like let's say written was Objective-C. And I was writing an iOS app, but yeah, then, then Apple rejected it. So I was like, I was chasing this democratization. Like I just wanted to be able to create stuff and share it with the world and, you know, let it be mine. And then uh, it got shut down again. And so then I started learning web technologies. And I, as I was doing that, I started, you know, I, I, I had graduated with an English degree, so I, I didn't, I wasn't eligible for any big hotshot tech jobs yet, but I started teaching tech at a local art center to kids uh, over in Oakland. And it was a lot of fun. And so for a few years, I was just helping kids make games and refine their skills to make games. And meanwhile, honing my chops uh, and my own ability to make things. And through that, I met my you know, MetaMask co-founder, Aaron Davis, who is also making software to help kids learn how to program. And so we, we had this kind of common link where we were like, oh, can we make it fun to control computers in like a permissionless way? We were both really into web tech because we love that you can just make it give somebody a link and now they're in your whole world. So so that kind of, yeah, that, that was the beginning of a whole new journey with him. What things emerge as you're trying to teach kids how to create systems? Like that must have been a very impactful set of experiences. Yeah, I loved it. I would love to if finish MetaMask and do that again someday. You know, the, the same way you teach anything, I think, is you do it in small pieces. And this is also how you like build software is you start with little pieces that you can understand. So I always start with like draw a picture, you know, like a video game starts with a picture, you know, that, and then we're going to make it move and then we're going to make it do whatever you want. And just bit by bit, though. So we're, you know, a little input, little output. And so really breaking down the problem into smaller pieces and thinking about that. I think that applies as much to kids learning to make a video game as it does to smart co contract developers learning to make a complicated system. Gotcha. Okay. But then somehow you were pulled into an Apple black hole. Is that right? Yeah. So so Aaron, after I met him and we were making our cool games for, for kids, uh, that was our open source side project work, but he got me my first tech job. And so we were working at a startup that then got acquired by Apple and we worked there for a couple of years building uh, internal tools. And and so they were internal tools for some very, you know, design picky teams. And so we got to learn to hold ourselves to high standards and 
build software in kind of the traditional Web2 styles, you know, a lot of Rails and Postgres and Elasticsearch and things like that. And that was that was fine and stuff, but but it was it was a very clean and neat bubble. But I, I feel like, you know, I, I was hungry for feeling more tangible impact in what I did. And then when he met Vitalik at a Bitcoin meetup and heard about Ethereum, we just had all of our passions reignited for the idea of a a permissionless web where you can make applications, share a link, uh, let people jump in, nobody's permission, and and now make new kinds of applications that weren't possible before, or at least not possible to make them really easily securely. Like if you wanted to make a new currency before Ethereum, well, you better hope a lot of people trust you or you're writing your own consensus protocol from scratch. I mean, it just wasn't a thing, you know? There's definitely new categories of applications that are just turnkey now. How much of what was being discussed then, and I'm guessing what year was this, 2015-ish? That? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's like, yeah, 2015-ish, yeah. I mean, there was some of the things you could see around the corner, but not not everything, you know? What was your mental model then for what was possible? Like, there, there was certainly a canvas in the proposition of programmable blockchains and this, this ability to write all sorts of decentralized applications. But how did you imagine that world in 2015? Yeah, so I kind of painted you a picture here that was about the permissionlessness, like breaking through gatekeepers, be it Hollywood or the App Store. But there were there were really a few threads in my life that got triggered by it. Another one is I had most of my first web apps were related to a theme that I was calling e-democracy at the time. Like I was trying to make like, oh, what would a digital tool look like that helps you build consensus and make agreements as a group? And I, I wasn't the only person who came out of uh, Occupy with a lot of those kinds of thoughts. Like I was thinking a lot of the same things that Lumio was thinking, making this app for like, you make a group, you have proposals, you vote, you see a nice little pie chart of your group's sentiment, stuff like that. But I kept on hitting these problems like, oh, well, when you have a citation, how do you verify that it's a trustworthy source? you know, without like having a top down arbiter of truth or something. And there were all these little problems that I'd hit along the way when trying to make an e-democracy that I'd just been like, oh, it's really hard to make that actually secure. Like, what is your account system? You just use Facebook logins, you know, like, how do you identify what's reliable information? And so I had all these things in the back of my head where it just felt like some of these important problems, like actually reorganizing society are hard to do with traditional software architecture. So when I heard oh, a programming environment where it's transparently executing as intended, that got my mind sparkling. And I remember having a moment where I was like, it was like my big, like, like oh, an organization could really be built on this. I, the way I'd said it is, a, is a, a, a democracy is just a pointer to its own update policy. It was like my, I was like, well, the, when I had that realization that you could just point at an update policy and then just iterate from there, and you could just keep on refining your own policy. It meant that we could have like self-updating community policies and like evolving governments that are executed, you know, by computers that we agreed on the the policies of. And that was a real mind-blowing opportunity. And so, you know, me and Aaron were like, all right, well, let's make some apps on this. And then that took us to, hey, wait, it's impossible to make apps on this. There is no account manager for Ethereum. We need to make one real quick. This will should be easy. <laughs> this should be a quick one. We totally thought it was going to be a few months or something. And then I, I think we, we had no idea what a rabbit hole we were falling into. But it turns out it's actually an enormous problem. 
and we're still refining it and we still have a long way to refine it. And I think the protocols still have a long way to improve to be really usable too. Yeah, I mean, it's a rabbit hole that leads into a black hole that loops into a multi-dimensional vortex that then brings you back to the beginning of time and splinters you into you know a bunch of clones that you can't touch. I mean, it's really a, a very blue ocean opportunity with a whole bunch of new components to refactor human organization. I'm going super philosophical and high level because even just your concept of you know, democracy is a pointer to its own update policy. To me, it triggers this broader idea about people as computational machines, you know, and then societies themselves as higher order computational machines. And that's triggered because I think a lot of what's going on in the blockchain world and organization using blockchains and DAOs and so on, delegates a lot of trust into software execution. And I think I think there's no there's no attention looking at, at software and believing that it's deterministically true. I think there there is some tension about looking at people and the structures that they form in very squishy ways and really drawing that line that you know people at scale sort of like compute to answers and individuals making rational decisions and so on i wonder if this is a topic that you've grappled with at all in seeing how how different sort of societies and groups and tribes have emerged because it seems like we just have all this new evidence about how societies work from the last four or five years yeah i mean for one thing, I think that we're seeing a lot of how people think societies work, because that's what people keep on tending towards with their designs of DAOs. So I, yeah, it's incredibly interesting. So for my own evolution of thinking, like I started from, oh, we just need to improve democracy a little bit. I thought maybe if you could delegate votes, you had liquid democracy and continuous voting, so you can change your vote at any time. And it was a direct democracy, so everyone could vote on any issue they cared about. I thought that that would kind of stack up and be basically a better democracy on its own. And also I wanted like rank choice voting and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, and actually uh, I'm not too far from there. <laughs> like uh, what we're seeing is is we're seeing a really big trend of experimenting with different kinds of democracies. Like people are trying out, yeah, like is it token weighted? Is it one person, one vote? Is it some kind of, you know, quadratic, like put your money where your mouth is type thing? Can we come up with an identity registry where we give out the voting rights in a fair way? I think that that's really, really hard to do. And so actually, I, a lot of my evolution has been like personally looking for ways that don't rely on central identity registries like, as much as possible. And I, I think that there's still a lot of designs that are going around where they're like, oh, yeah, but but if we had a perfect identity registry, a lot of this would be easy. You know, there's there's a lot of things like that. But uh I think I think that what we're seeing is, yeah, people people will opt into the organizations that seem legitimate to them. If they're excluded, they won't be legitimate to them. Most of the organizations, if if it's not perfect, then it's just another kind of unfair distribution of tokens. I do think there's a really strong ecosystem of people kind of enjoying the repeated unfair distribution of tokens. So I think there are like communities of people that are kind of chasing private discords, you know, and it's like, ah, if you join our next token sale, you'll get an invite to our next private discord for our next token sale. And that's, that's very insular and really not the kind of opportunity that I'm interested in enabling. 
I'm looking for what are the strongest opportunities we can give to people who aren't already in an insular community that's provide, you know, kind of self-serving opportunity. And I think that those kinds of questions are, they cut right to the heart of like, where does value actually get created in a society? And, and what, what do we value? And what can we get other people to value? And I think cutting to those kinds of questions is, is the right direction for, for asking bigger questions of like, how do you make like a sustained value? Because, you know, otherwise you're just rotating cryptocurrency and, you know, it may look like, well, the last sale of your NFT was really high, but, you know, you keep flipping it for additional NFTs. If you suddenly, you know, were in a recession and needed to survive, could you sell all of them for their last price? That's maybe less likely. And so I'm actually kind of interested in developing social resilience. Like, what does it mean to have a set of currencies that actually hold their value as well as possible? So we can kind of invest in a more sustainable future. But, but you know, this, this technology allows all of those questions to be explored uh, in parallel. And it's all, you know, voluntary. So people can test any thesis they have and I don't have to agree with it. And, and that's kind of the beauty is that we can just facilitate as many experiments as possible because we have a lot of things we need to solve. So we better try a lot of things to, to find a solution. There's a lot of really interesting embedded points in there that I just want to echo again, you know, so the the first is that experiments can actually be run on macro economies and social organization. And historically, that happens when there's like real life war and everything's decimated and you rebuild, you know, and it takes centuries. And here we've had in just a couple of years, half a decade, we've had multiple attempts at social organization with different seeds and structures that experimentally through the actual evolution of, you know, some particular set of characteristics, let's have a monarch, let's have a constitution, let's have a bunch of oligarchs, let's have delegated oligarchs, but only if, you know, on this, on this day, but not this day. And we're actually seeing the experimental results. So the world is going from being just model driven to having documented information at, at a very fast scale. And I think that's really interesting. I think you've also mentioned sort of this recursive nature of crypto assets more broadly. And I'm always of two minds about this because I'm a somewhat conservative person in terms of wanting to control risk and minimize risk while also taking the right amount of risk. While I think a lot of people are kind of predisposed to hit that dopamine and this, it's in part been why crypto assets have grown so much because they really go after our lizard brain and our reward circuits, you know, and you're not just following a tribal leader, you're following a tribal leader with whom, you know, you're sort of pillaging is the wrong word, but with whom you are pirating a set of rewards from, from the universe that's distinctive to you. And that's very, very encouraging. But I think these recursive kind of dynamics, like when the, the American colonies were established, you know, like the growth from that first colony to the, the full country is sort of recursive in the sense that you have a self-sustaining population that then invents its own economy and expands and so on and so forth. But anyway, we I took us into a very philosophical place. So, you know, maybe let's ground and anchor again in the, the practical realities of of building out this crypto wallet, you know, and, and again, I think a lot of people have a mental framework of, oh, it's like Robin Hood, but for Ethereum stuff. Can you talk a little bit about maybe not the feature set, but the actual difference and the different shape of what a Web3 crypto wallet is versus what, what people generally think of when they think like Google Pay or, you know, like 
Revolut or Chime or Betterment? Like, what is MetaMask in relation to those other offerings? Yeah. So the first thing that, you know, I, I think sometimes people get most irritated about this, but it's important. And we are increasingly smoothing it out over time is that users are responsible for their own accounts. Now, today in MetaMask, that means backing up a secret recovery phrase. We are very, very eager to bring alternative backup schemes. I, I am so, so bullish on contract accounts and you know experiments like social recovery. I think those are incredibly important, but it all starts with giving the user choice. Like the user now isn't just logging into Robinhood's server. They have the option of choosing their own control. You know, of course, there's always centralized exchanges, but a wallet like MetaMask lets you actually control your funds. You can have them on a hardware wallet and without physical access, your funds are unusable. So that's one really big, important distinction. And it means your accounts can't be frozen, it means that you can get fished and lose them though. Um, so it's a, it's a real trade-off. We are, we are in a period where it's, it's very experimental and it's dangerous, but it also has these benefits for people who want to try things that, you know, you can't try as fast as you'd like in the traditional financial system. So then furthermore, while we do allow swaps and trades like a traditional kind of investment app, and we have a nice integrated swaps product and it's got the, you know, best reliability of any swap platform in, in the whole blockchain, but really uh, the most of the value our users are getting is trying out new things. So they'll log into a new sale, they'll connect to a, a DAO that they're a part of, or they'll, they'll, they'll buy a token, maybe they'll use it to vote, maybe they'll use it to stake and get some yields. So there's all these new kinds of financial primitives, maybe derivatives, maybe collective investing advice, no loss lotteries, basically a whole ecosystem full of things that you can do with these assets that you're holding. So it's not just the opportunities that we provide, but we're providing you a wallet that you're able to connect to a whole application ecosystem with. And, and then also one other fundamental thing is it all requires having some of the base blockchain currency. And I think for people coming from traditional investment things, that's weird. I was uh, stepping someone through how to onboard just yesterday. And, you know, that's, that's a thing you have to explain. You say, oh yeah, well, this is ether, you know, you use it to perform transactions. They, keep the whole thing stable. You know, we want to sweep that under the rug as much as possible. And I think meta transactions deserve to be at the base layer of the protocol. But until then, there's a lot more burden kind of on wallet developers to like kind of build out contract accounts and things like that. What has the evolution been of the types of things that you've seen the ecosystem build like over 2016, 2017 through the winter and then in the in the 2020 resurgence like how has the usage of metamask changed over time in terms of what people are building for it and then what its users are using it for i think a lot of the the basic use cases are actually kind of similar it's just there's so much more of them that you're getting so many more polished and high quality uh, projects kind of gradually emerging like from the very beginning everybody knew that it was going to be good for like group investing and you know crowdfunding and maybe to a lesser extent gaming I, I think nfts and art have been a little bit a bigger surprise like i don't think people realized how exciting that that kind of community could be but i i personally kind of group it in a form of of crowdfunding like i think of nfts as like artist crowdfunds but uh yeah i, I don't know so back in 2016 was a quiet building year it was like people just doing little proofs of concept making their first token making their first contract account. It was incredibly simple. It was a 
it's a beautifully quiet time. People learning how to program, people just helping each other out, reading white paper, reading every white paper because there were only like 10 white papers in Ethereum that year. And then um, 2017 was when the first token sales started. People got good enough to at issuing tokens that they were able to actually sell them for money. And you know there were like seven significantly large sales that year. And um, they really taxed the ecosystem. You know, they taxed the uh, the gas market or interface, uh, the blockchain's ability to scale. But you know, didn't put everybody on the track of scaling yet. They still were like, eh, maybe that was a fluke. <laughs> uh, I think we're relearning a lot of 2017 uh, lessons right now in the NFT market, where there's still like a daily drop. Like pretty much every day, there will be a drop, and then there's a price spike because every drop is first come first serve it's like burning man every day but then uh 20 2018 yeah that was the quiet barrier there was a big price crash and so a lot of the exuberant enthusiasm left and it was another quiet building year a lot of people kind of developing out what they thought would be like the high quality user experiences i think that we had the unique perspective of how much it wasn't scaling because we'd been through 2017 and we'd seen the gas spikes. So a lot of the new wallets that came about in 2018 were doing things like assuming they could subsidize gas prices uh, for users. And then in 2019, when it started booming up again, they ended up having to terminate those programs because the gas prices are like a fundamental security mechanism of the protocol and they get expensive when usage goes up. 2019, that's, uh, wait, was 2019 big again? <laughs> that was still another kind of quiet one, wasn't it? 2019 was uh, 2019 through 2020, beginning of 2020 was still a bit of pain. And then I think DeFi. Yeah, DeFi summer was, yeah, that was 2020. Yeah, two years of bear. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah it was, it's weird because uh, when it's quiet and bearish like that, it's like, I don't know, we, we had a lot we wanted to build, but it's, um yeah, yeah, we, we were, we were building out for the long term, but it's almost like you don't know the pace you have to build at because you don't know when it's all going to come smashing back again. And so we, we started investing in some longer term projects uh, during that time. But yeah, then 2020 came along, DeFi summer, all these polished kind of investment, liquidity farming things started coming out. And then, you know, late 2020, 2021, you know, the emergence of this huge NFT community, so many artists and, and new kind of creative exploration started be beginning. Also, DAOs started emerging somewhere in there, right? Like the Moloch DAO that came out in like 2019, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the earliest, the earliest ones did and then kind of clicked into once people had gotten attracted by, I think, the DeFi financial interests, they, they started to organize and create syndicates and start to try to figure out how to govern treasuries and so on. Yeah, yeah. And so then this is the year of like, private discords for DAOs and, and token weighted voting and people making collective investments in NFTs and then uh, yield farming on the side and making portfolios that other people can invest in. And so it's getting much more sophisticated in what's possible today. But of course, you know, as, as a well developer, I, I will tell you, we still have a really long way to go in terms of making the user experience more accessible to users. And, and everyone will tell you that uh, we're, I think, extremely aware of it. Yeah, it's a hard... Um slope to climb when you go from 200,000 users to, you know, 15 million users and, and to keep people's money safe is sufficiently hard, but to do it at that scale must be very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, it's the, the twin rocks. We're getting crushed between a continuous rock and hard place of, I don't know how much software has ever needed to be more secure, but then simultaneously we're being pushed to innovate faster than you know, because we're building on top of this permissionlessly innovating space. So we're trying to be as secure as a rocket launch, because that's probably how much funds we're securing, or many rocket launches probably. And meanwhile, 
trying to enable rates of kind of community driven innovation that, you know, I mean, permissionless innovation is kind of new. Like, I mean, web 1.0 is a permissionless space, but it just wasn't accessible enough for people to just deploy their own websites to do really trivially, but we're increasingly having these like, you know, then web two made it so, okay, well you just pay these companies to host all your stuff, but they can take you down. They can lock your account. They can kick you out. So we're trying to rekindle that like web 1.0 style. You can do whatever you want, but suddenly with this like empowered, you know, contractual framework that lets you have value on it. So now you've got people who are coding for the first time, but they're coding financial applications. And so you've got this necessity for ease and security, like I think computers have never had to do before. And, and I think it's really, really good to be asking those questions because like computers are our machines, they're extensions of our minds. And if we can't ask them to do what we want and know that they'll do it, then what the hell have we built ourselves? You know, the fact that people just trivially get fished, trivially get hacked, that people don't understand that if you open a, a attachment on an email that it could just own your computer, it just shows how broken computers are today. And so we're really trying to build this new financial system on top of the personal computer revolution is less than a generation old. And I, I think we clearly don't actually have it down yet. So we're trying to build a correct foundation on top of a faulty one in a way. Right. And arguably, that's just what's going to be there, right? You can't fix the fact that everybody's going to download the attachment that installs the keyloggers and tricks the browsers and all of that stuff. And so that's that's a both a human and a, and a technical challenge. I wanted to ask you about this concept of what a developer is, because depending on where you are in the ecosystem, you may or may not know what an engineer or programmer or developer really is, other than maybe that Steve Jobs meme video of developers, developers, developers. And I think developers have been the, the secret weapon behind MetaMask's success and weapons, the wrong word, but maybe the, you know, the, the wind that has made it such a powerful tool, you know, and it makes me think a little bit back to also the Apple ecosystem, which grew largely because developers wanted to build things for it, as well as the Windows ecosystem, largely because people wanted to build things for it. And where there were applications, there were users, and where there were users, there were applications. And so in many ways, MetaMask is benefiting from, from similar cycles. And so I just wanted to ask you how you think about developers, how you think about what does it mean to, to help developers connect into MetaMask? Like, just riff a little bit on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that developers are just like people who are saying something in words that computers understand. I, I really think that computer programming is a lot just like literacy of the 21st century. Before, I'm, I'm thinking when we're scribes, like a special class. You in know? the before time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I know like ancient Egypt, like a scribe was a special thing. I, I'm sure this was similar in many places, right? There, there are many places where people were mostly illiterate and there was a special class that knew how to read and write. And so now they have access to the libraries and stuff. And I think it's kind of similar where, look, human beings have a lot of potential if their, you know, minds learn how to interact in these other ways. And, you know, you have to learn how to read and write, but now suddenly you can talk with people across space and time. Like it's an inc incredible superpower, right? And then programming and developers, I think it's really similar. We now have the ability to 
not just communicate across space and time like a single linear idea, but the ability to communicate a whole set of conditions and terms and policies and you know a dynamic system basically. So, you know, software it's not just a movie; it's it's an interaction. And the ability to express an interaction to other people, you know, it means you can like scale your ability to collaborate with other people and to express the, the kinds of interactions that you want to interact with people. And so for me, I, you know, I'm trying to solve for social coordination. And so I'm, you know, I'm saying what, what kind of software helps people propose new agreements with each other. And that's kind of what's driving a lot of this kind of stuff for me. So a developer is just somebody who's expressing new policy. And and I want that to be as low a bar as possible. You know, obviously today to write contracts in Ethereum, you have to know Solidity. And then to make the UI, you have to know some JavaScript. So that's a two language hurdle. But you know, Solidity is getting easier. There's there's more tools for making it verifiable. There's people experimenting with other, you know, languages like Viper. And there's there's people experimenting with other languages too. And and I think that long-term, everybody deserves to be, be a developer because everyone deserves to express terms to the world. And so for me, the pursuit of developers is really the pursuit of inclusivity of digital agreement making. There's an interesting philosophical thread in that as well, which is you're describing the making of software as a, an expression, as like an utterance, and therefore software is a part of the freedom of speech. And then if making software is in a way speech, and we have this kind of massive economic machine on which it is rendered, economic freedom is part of that freedom of speech, you know, and it kind of brings you to liberty, it brings you to the pursuit of happiness. I went to law school. So I'm just, you know, just uh, checking those boxes. But I think there's an interesting idea there about how things that were really unbundled, which is, you can say stuff, but then really, it's the state that guarantees or, or brings to you the instruments by which you can transact, really gets inverted back into into the self. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So let's say we enacted the Ethereum protocol verbally, it would be like me saying, hey, you know what I think is Anybody who cryptographically makes a statement, you know, I, I would uphold the policy of the statement they made, you know, as long as they pay this this fee. And then you'd say, like, I hear you and I second that, right? And we go around the world. And then eventually somebody's like, I would like to issue a currency. And I think that Lex has a million Dan bucks or whatever, you know? And then and now by saying that, if I verbally say that, I like have made a verbal ledger. Was that a security <laughs> or like, you know, am I legally liable? You know, have I created a currency by by expressing, you know, gratitude or something? You know, if I thank yeah. you. I say, oh, I'm forever in your debt. Have I just is that a taxable event? You know, like I, or, or to what degree is like gratitude just like an internal state? Totally. Yeah. I mean, and we have been doing this with pheromones and tongue flapping for however many millennia. Right. And so. The magic now is that it's this vector, except it's encoded, meaning it is it's readable by everybody, and therefore there is less deceit in it because it, it is viewable and not opaque. So I think that's really powerful. But one more, just one more kind of naive question on 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 developers. Let's say I'm a a person who's just learned how to program in Solidity, and I want to make an app. Do I have to email Dan to give me access to MetaMask for approval? Like, how does it how does it work? How do I 
you know, quote unquote, plug into MetaMask. Yeah, yeah, you sure don't. <laughs> yeah, you, you do not need our permission. You know, from the very beginning, we built MetaMask on top of standards that others were declaring. So we were compatible with the Mist browser, which has now been deprecated. But I mean, there's a lot of ways of learning how to write applications that are compatible with MetaMask. One of the ways is at our own documentation page, docs.metamask.io. But there are countless others. Ethereum.org is a great resource. They can teach you how to make all kinds of smart contracts. The Build Guild is, is a really fun resource for people who know some React. The, the Truffle website has a lot of great tutorials that have taught a lot of people how to make this stuff. The great thing is because the blockchain is this kind of public communication protocol, uh, anybody can just deploy new contracts to it. And then you know, MetaMask, we don't charge to use the wallet. We don't charge to do anything with it other than our, our value added service uh, doing swaps. And you don't have to do swaps through our feature. It's just kind of convenient to, in our opinion, it, reliable and likely giving you a, a very good price, perhaps the best you could get. But yeah, so it's free. We're free to use. You know, we build on protocols that other people have made. And so you can just interact with those protocols and use MetaMask to connect with them. We're really trying to keep the barrier to entry as low as possible. So it's free to use the wallet. The blockchains you connect to may have a currency, but we connect to any Ethereum compatible network. So you can publish your own blockchain if you don't like it and then, you know, do whatever you want. Yeah, this is one of the things that's, I think, hard also for Web 2.0 or fintech people to get because everybody's used to the Visa or MasterCard card rails where that's where all the money travels and that's how you send the transaction. And when you use, let's say, an NFC sensor for Google Pay or Apple Pay or you scan a QR code or whatever and you invoke the Visa or MasterCard network, you pay interchange on every transaction. And that interchange goes to Visa. Whereas in the case of MetaMask, you also have a gas fee that you pay, but that's not a MetaMask fee. That's a protocol fee at the level of the entire blockchain in order to secure computation and prioritize computation. And so that is just, uh, it's just another onboarding thing that's, that's quite difficult for folks to get. Yeah. But it's, it's powerful though, if they get it, because if they, if they really get it, they realize, wait, I can kind of prepay for fees and effectively speculate on the value of that network. And so now you, you aren't just a user of an application, you're instantly kind of an investor in it. And now you have incentives to improve it too. And so now you get these network effects where people are like, oh, well, first I just bought it because I wanted to use an application. Now I'm able to make applications. And when I do, you know, I have the potential of improving the whole network's value too. And so I actually benefit from it, even if I don't build in a regular business model into what I've done, which is pretty crazy. It's it's different from, you know, you don't get Visa stock when you pay interchange. That definitely doesn't doesn't work out like that. Yeah. So one one more question that I wanted to ask about the protocol itself, because you know, consensus and MetaMask were by many people originally thought of as like Ethereum companies. You know, you, you guys do Ethereum, you do EVM. And yet we're now in this world that has a bunch of different protocols with slightly different functionalities. Some of them are for file storage. Others are for, you know, optimized for trading. Others are optimized for maybe NFTs or, or other things. How do you think about this multi-chain world? Is there a multi-chain world? And, you know, what does it connect into? What are, what are the things that are in? What are the things that are out? You know, maybe another way to formulate it is, like, how do you think about 
the transition from Ethereum to Web3? And then what role is MetaMask playing in that? And and in that definition, Web3 is not just Ethereum. Okay, so yeah, so today, yeah, where we are today is we are an Ethereum and Ethereum compatible chain wallet. So, you know, for a long time, we were really primarily used with Ethereum, but you could connect us to your own blockchain. We've made it easier this year where you can now, websites can suggest users connect to new networks. And we're really continuing in that direction where, you know, it's clear that Ethereum's scaling strategy is not to just go faster. It's to enable new additional networks to be built on top of it. And so to enable those to grow, you know, I'm not here to start putting up my own new gates to keep. You know, I I came here from getting, you know, rejected from Hollywood in the app store. I'm not trying to recreate the systems that excluded me. So the way that we're approaching MetaMask's own extension into the multi-chain future is largely through well the extensible API of our custom networks. And then also we have a long running project, as you know, called Snaps, which is our own plugin system. And that's going to allow anyone to create a new network and add it into the wallet. And so that's, that's a very ambitious project. It's taken longer than we expected, but it's actually coming along really well. So I, I think that our, our approach to scalability is increasingly aligned with our approach to just connecting to contracts, which is well, it should be permissionless. Anybody should be able to do it. Uh, anyone should be able to make a new one. And then anybody should be able to interact with an application that's deployed on one. And so that's that's a very big new category for us. But I think it's really important that we preserve these kinds of permissionless characteristics of the network, because that's a lot of what makes them interesting in the first place. Absolutely. I, I can't wait for, for it to be launched in part just to see how many things accelerate exponentially because that seems to be what happens when you open up new doors. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely how I think of it is just, it's a new, it's a new lever uh, for developers. And so developers that are just building new applications today, they may be unblocked to build new protocols or they may be unblocked to operate on new protocols and just, yeah. So, so I think we're going to really accelerate our, our ability to discover ways that work better than whatever we're doing today. Super. Awesome. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time today to open up these stories and describe the the process behind how MetaMask came together and where it's going. It's super fascinating. If our listeners want to learn more about you or more about MetaMask, where should they go? Uh, you can learn more about MetaMask at MetaMask.io. My digital identity is scattered around. I, I do have a DanFinlay.com, but I haven't updated it in like seven years. I've got a bit of a presence on Twitter uh, at DanFinlay. And you know you can occasionally see me do weird experiments on GitHub also at DanFinlay. And, and then Keybase at DanFinlay also has all my other contact info. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Been a great chat. A big thank you to our listeners for joining today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Keep the conversation going by following us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Discord, all at Consensus. Reach out, ask questions, and suggest who you'd like to see featured in future episodes. To learn more about the topics discussed today, see our blog at consensus.net slash blog and subscribe to our weekly Signal newsletter. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.